Ronas. So Doug raised an issue in one of our in our private meeting here, which is not at all personal, it's just a matter of Dhamma. And it has to do with a point also raised by someone else. Hmm. Kim. Where's Kim? Is Kim here? Who's Kim's buddy? There's, yeah, you're Kim's buddy? She's not here? <laughs> not so good buddy. <laughs> Try to find out afterwards, okay? It's not a matter of policing. It's just, is she okay? You know, is she passed out? Is she awake? And so, there we go. But Kim raised the point, and it's, and it's related to the point raised by Doug, and that is... A thing we're going, theme we will come back to again and again in these eight weeks. And that's the distinction between the substrate consciousness, the alaivichnana, kunjinamshi, and rikpa. Right? If you, as Dujum Lingba himself says, or Padmasambhava by way of Dujum Lingba says, if you confuse those, fuse them together, can't distinguish them, you've lost the path. You're not going to move ahead. Right? And so you really must clearly distinguish them. So I'm not going to be able to make it totally clear with one phrase, probably. But we'll have eight weeks to try to get clearer and clearer on this point. And where Doug chimed in was that we both attended some marvelous teachings, very short, incredibly dense, quintessential teachings on Dzogchen from the Bhutanese Lama, Gantan Rinpoche, just a few weeks ago. And he drew a distinction between two terms. One in Tibetan is Selcha, translated as clarity, very commonly, luminosity, vividness, they're all correct. And then the other one was Dangsha. And it came up already in our text, in, in the Vajra Essence. Right? Already came up. And this morning at 2 o'clock, I changed the translation. <laughs> because something just became very clear. And that is the word limpid, I was translated as limpid. Limpid. It's a nice word, not used much, but it's a nice word because it implies transparency, luminosity, the limpid pool of water, and all of that. It's a nice word, and I've, and I've been content with it for some years. And then there's morning, morning at 2 o'clock, newsflash, and that is that Gangten Tuku, as you know, Doug, Gangten Tuku said, Gangten Rinpoche said, that the term sel, these were selcha, the luminosity, the clarity, this pertains to relative mind. Remember? Relative mind. What's the essence of relative mind? on the relative level, is substrate consciousness. The relative essence, the relative essential nature, not to mo, can be ultimate, it can also be relative. The mo of mind on the relative level is a substrate consciousness, and it's by nature luminous. We all know that, right? And there's that word, luminous, luminous, selcha, selcha, it's, it's directly relating to that. Now, but Gantantuku, really with this finessing, this very, this precision teaching that I love, and try to absorb and then transmit. He said there's this other term, though, entirely different term, dangsha, dangsha, uh, which is a noun, and I was translating as limpidity. But then I, but, and he was saying, this is a quality of rikpa. It's quite distinct from the clarity, the brilliance, the brightness, the freshness, and so forth of substrate consciousness, or just being really bright, you know, really having a very clear mind. It's different. It's qualitatively different. It's not more of the same. So in the, this fine young translator, I have only praise for him, Andre, the Polish translator, who is Gantin uh, his interpreter. 
he translated as brilliance, uh, that would just imply more of the same. That is, it's, it's, it's luminous and the brilliance. Okay, more of the same. But I knew that wasn't right. It didn't capture it, right? I thought limpidity was closer. But then, something really obvious. And this will nail it. And that is, what's the difference between a really bright, clear, vivid, high-definition dream in which you'd really characterize it as selwa, as clear, bright, luminous, high acuity, high definition, right? You don't know what that's like. What's the difference between that and a lucid dream? Cognizance. You act in a, in a lucid dream, whether it's bright or it's dull or medium, you actually know what's going on. And you can be in the midst of an extremely vivid, detailed, high-resolution dream and be delusional, thinking this is a waking state and responding emotionally in every other way, as if it's waking, and you don't know the most important thing about what you're experiencing. It's a dream, right? That nails it. it that is, it doesn't give you direct realization of Rigpa, clearly, it's just giving an analogy, but it's an incredibly powerful analogy. The difference between a clear dream and a lucid dream, between clarity and lucidity, and lucidity is its also clear, but it's a cognitive clarity. And it's a knowing clarity. It's a cognizant clarity. You actually know. Welcome, Haggai. Good to see you again. We have one more person who will be coming in in, in a couple of days, and Maria Elena. Uh, Maria Elena, Maria Elena de la Puente. <laughs> poetry is for Spanish. Spanish is for poetry. Even a person's name, Maria Elena de la Puente, is on Sunday. Be singing to you. So in any case, back I'm, I'm getting distracted. But good to see you, Haggai. I'm glad you're back. So, but you see the point, isn't it? So this word I've been translating for, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years as limpidity, not bad. It's not wrong. It's lucidity. And I checked it out in the dictionary. And I said, whoa. It was exactly that. And it even spoke of a lucid pool of water or something like that. So lucid, there it is. And now I don't need to say anything more. If you either know about or you've had lucid dreams, you know that is, there's a discontinuity there. That is, you can be cruising along non-lucid in a very bright, clear, vivid dream, and then suddenly, this radical discontinuity, this abrupt shift in perspective on the dream, and now you're seeing it from the waking state, right? And now it's a lucid dream. But it's not just brighter. It's not more of the same. It is qualitatively different. So you remember the wonderful account I've said I've told it so many times of the wandering ascetic Trona. You remember him tracking the Buddha, looking at his footprints, tracking him, finding him. Then, whoa! I mean, really being impressed by his sheer presence and wondering, whoa! This, I mean, he really kind of got it. This, this person is not ordinary. And you remember what he asked? He said, "Are you a god?" And the Buddha said, "No." Are you a celestial being, like an angel or something like that? Buddha said, no. Are you an elemental being, like an earth spirit or something like that? Buddha said, no. And then the most interesting question. Remember, are you a human being? And the Buddha said, no. Oh. That one really catches my attention. His daddy was a human being. His mommy was a human being. His wife was a human being. His boy was a human being. I would pretty much say he's bracketed. He's bracketed, right? 
mom and dad, wife and children, all human beings? And he said, no. Then Turana said, and who are you? What are you? And he said, I am awake. He's lucid in the waking state. We think we are. Psychologists think they are. Philosophers think they are. They're all sleepwalkers, unless they're awake. We're sleepwalkers. I'm not putting down a profession or academia. But, you know, we tend to think. It happens a lot in psychology, that you just simply assume you're sane. Okay, okay whatever I am, that's okay. And now you're down there, right? And never looking up. Oh. <laughs> Compared to you, I'm cuckoo. So that's it. It's really a very close analogy. You may have incredible vividness. By shamatha, you're just unveiling the natural luminosity of your own substrate consciousness. And it's it's been reported so many times in the past, because how many thousands, tens of thousands of people have achieved shamatha? Let's not make too big a deal out of it. Like, oh, it must be so difficult. Few people practice, few people attain. What's a big surprise there? You know. But what's, what's it like when you achieve that? And that is not only when you're resting in meditative equipoise, is there's this enormous sense of brilliance, clarity, vividness, luminosity, but also in between sessions. You venture out into the world, and it's kind of like you just went from a 100-watt bulb to a 1,000-watt bulb. Everything is clearer, brighter, more vivid. And why? Because your mind is less veiled. The natural luminosity of your own awareness is less veiled. So everything you're experiencing is just, you know, if it were music, it would be high-fidelity music. I mean, it's really clear, right? But you're still deluded if all you have is shamatha. You're still seeing all appearances as existing from their own side. You're still probably grasping onto them as existing from their own side, grasping onto yourself as from your own side, which then gives rise to craving, hostility. So you've come into a, a, a nice neighborhood of samsara. It's one of the better neighborhoods. More, more elite neighborhoods. You know. But your lease is going to round. You didn't buy a house there, you leased it. Right? And you can be in skid row as soon as you stop breathing. Back, you know, there you are. So, but in utter contrast to that, if you realize Rikpa, or even some glimmering of Rikpa, if you've had pointing out instruction from some qualified Lama who really is giving you that mind transmission, and let alone becoming a vidyadhara, you have some authentic taste, some, some cutting through, then you know that's not just being clearer. It is a shifting of the axis of your perspective on reality. So it's coming more in alignment with viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa. Right? Now, once again, Gamjan Tukuramitya made a very helpful comment. I've never heard it articulated with quite such precision. He said, on the one hand, there is this cutting through to Rikpa. Like when, who was it? When Tilopa whacked Naropa, you know, with his sandal. And suddenly, he really got it. I mean, his whole axis shifted, right? And he's viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa, Mahamudra, Rikpa. That's really deep. And the man was so prepared, he was so primed, that I don't know the details, but he may have very well become a Vijayadara right there full, unmediated, non-conceptual, non-dual realization of Rikpa, right? But when most people go to some of the wonderful lamas who are traveling about teaching nowadays, giving, pointing out instructions, you know, sometimes to complete beginners, and I've heard so many times, people receiving it and having some very meaningful experience. 
really meaningful, authentic. Does that mean they're vidyadatas? Nobody's claiming that. The Lama's giving the point and instructions. They're not claiming that. The people receiving it, if they know what's going on, they don't say, oh yeah, I went for a weekend retreat and I'm a vidyadatta. I've never heard anybody say that. There's no baloney here. But they do get what, what Gantan Ramach called, you're not fully realizing Rikpa, but you remember what he said? You're getting an aspect. You're getting an aspect of Rikpa. And that's like picking up the fragrance. Like when you step out, when you go around about there at 6 o'clock, you go around there, right? Pick up any fragrance from the kitchen? Right. You're not eating, but you might already know what they've cooked, right? And then if you trace that scent to its source, well, of course, you're going to trace it to the food. And then you can chow down and really have the full meal. So when you gain, through a pointing out instruction, when you, when you gain some glimpse, some, you get the fragrance, you pick up the fragrance, the taste of rikpa. Most likely you've only gotten an aspect, but an aspect is not something mistaken. It's not something in the opposite direction. It's an aspect. And if you follow that to its source, it just gets clearer and clearer. So that's one way that people will follow the path of Dzogchen by having kind of a rocket launch to the top of the mountain. You know, like, pew, and then, oh, you know, you get up there, you, you are there for some seconds, and then gradually you're fading back into ordinary, uh, ordinary, ordinary, how do you say, state of consciousness. But it's not simply like having some hedonic pleasure. Like, you know, really good meal, or fantastic vacation, or seeing an incredibly good movie. Those are nice, there's nothing wrong with them. But when it's over, can you really say you're transformed? You know, by some hedonic pleasure. That you've, that you've moved along the direction to perfect enlightenment by seeing a really good movie or an outstanding you know, meal, etc., etc. You know, all the, all the you know, hedonic pleasure. The answer, I think, is pretty much clearly no. You are exactly where you were before. You just had a little spike of pleasure. Now it's over. It's become a memory. And the memory will fade. And then it will be gone. So welcome to samsara forever. You know? Whereas when one has such a kind of a peak experience, by an authentic lama, you're ripe, mind transmission takes place, and you pick up the aspect of rikpa. There's some lingering kind of aftershock, a reverberation, that if it's gone deeply enough into your awareness, then it will hook you in the very good sense of the term. And you'll know, aha, I have to follow that. I have to follow that. You know? I'm no longer there, but it's not just a memory, like a memory of the hedonic pleasure. Qualitatively very different. So, enough of that. But that's, so that's now my new translation. And I wrote to Andre. He was really happy. He is really happy. He said, I, I wasn't happy with that translation brilliance either. And that's exactly it. Yeah, lucidity. It's exactly it. It's really, it really catches it. So clear, 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 clear. And then discontinuity, lucidity. Different it's different. It's not more. It's different. There we are. Finished. Now, another good question came up today. This one, well, I'll keep it private. By and large, you, you, should, you, you must know, and I am telling you, that our personal meetings, they're private. They're private. But if you have some really interesting experience that I think would be helpful for other people to know, I may cite it, but no, I will give people no way of knowing whose experience it is. And of course, it, it, it has to do with a family member, so, you know. 
Private is private. This is like doctor, doctor, client, psychiatrist, client. I'm not a doctor or a psychiatrist, but this is private. But when it's simply a point of dharma, then dharma, dharma, you know, there we are. So one, more, one further point. And now we're in it. This is, this is a segue to the practice we're about to return to. Mindfulness of breathing in this mode. And I would really say it's the minimalist approach, a minimalist interpretation of the Buddhist teachings right there in the Pali Canon. Because everything else seems not wrong, but just more. You know, attend to your nostrils. Buddha never said that. Attend to etc., etc. So you know what I'm talking about. But here's the question. And that is when you set, settle into the flow of the practice and you're there resting your awareness. Again, my little mudra comes up, this, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> I went to Sunday school. <laughs> Still clear, unflickering, unwavering. Uh, you're resting there. But you are aware of, vividly, the... I'm going to use this word, and it's not new agey, it's, it's, just, it's just the best words I can find. The fluctuations in the field. That is, your awareness is not confined inside itself, right? It's not inside a little tiny box where it's aware of nothing other than itself. It's like a candle flame in a room, and it's, it's illuminating the space around it. So even when you're very still, and you're not deliberately really trying to draw your awareness in upon itself to the exclusion of all else. You're simply still, without explicitly directing your attention here or there. Then, of course, it's illuminating the field right around you. And one of the things that it picks up, or is aware of, illuminates, is the fluctuations in the field. The fluctuations in the field of your experience, the fluctuations corresponding to in-breath, out-breath. Quite clear, right? There's nothing mysterious about this, nothing difficult about this. If you're sitting quietly, like right now, without changing your posture, and you simply rest in that mode of awareness, you don't have to do something special to be aware of what's already going on, and of which you are already implicitly aware, at least, and that's the fluctuations. The fluctuations in the field, the field of your experience, right? So that's all kind of repeat, nothing new so far. But then when you're in that field, and you're still relatively free of laxity, relatively free of excitation, how, if you really want to follow the path of mindfulness of breathing to take you to shamatha and even beyond, first jhana, second, third, fourth, because that's the way the Buddha taught it. He didn't say, get to shamatha, now you have to switch to another method. He said, no, mindfulness of breathing to the fourth jhana. That's what he taught it. And in Buddha Gosa's great commentary, that's how he interprets it. Right there at the beginning of Satipana, Satipatthana Sutta, as a prelude to Vipassana, he teaches mindfulness of breathing, the tetrad. And then in the Buddha Gosa's commentary, he just tracks out the four, the four jhanas. Like, whoa. Yeah. And so, how do you move along? How do you move along the path? When you're resting there in this approach, minimalist interpretation, most literal interpretation, how do you then, how do you experience less and less laxity, less and less excitation, greater and greater stillness, greater and greater vividness. Well, let's just go right back to what the Buddha said. And now again, a little bit of repetition. Breathing in long, one notes the in-breath is long. Breathing out long, one notes the out-breath is long. Clear. And then, obviously, intuitively, and also just rationally, you need less air. So 
the volume of air is going to be less. And you will not have the, it won't have to breathe so long. That it's just gradually, it's just whole body, the whole body-mind system needs less air. So breathing in short, one notes, the in-breath is short. Breathing out, breathing out short, one notes, the out-breath is short. The whole thing is just settling down. So the volume, the volume of air decreases. But now as that happens, quite naturally, intuitively, and kind of obviously, the fluctuations in the field get subtler. They get subtler, right? A little bit tongue-in-cheek, but forgive me. I'm corny. But we've all seen Star Wars, right? And, and Yoda saying something like, a disturbance in the field there is. <laughs> you remember? Like when they blew up a whole planet? Oh, a disturbance, what was it? Anybody quote verbatim? It's pretty close, but yeah, pretty close. A disturbance in the field there is. That's pretty good, eh? In any case, you know what he's getting at. This is a guy really sensitive, and he's picking up the field, and he just figured out, oh, I think five billion people just died. You know, fluctuation in the field. But it's something, I'm not being really silly here. It's, was he targeting with clairvoyance? Oh, I see that planet there. Oh, I see a lot of anguish. No, it's, and I think it's not silly that there was a perturbation in the field of his own experience. Something dramatic has just happened. Well, the drama is getting subtler and subtler. The perturbations in the field of your awareness and it's your mental awareness because we know you can be aware of your breathing rhythm in a dream when you're not aware of your body. Right? That's kind of breakthrough important information. What happens here is the perturbations, the fluctuations in the field that you know to be the fluctuations corresponding to in-breath, out-breath. They're getting subtler and subtler. Now, we know also with common sense, they can't be getting shorter and shorter and shorter. That is the in-breath, out-breath. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's not possible. Can you imagine a person deep in samadhi going, that <laughs> ain't going to happen, right? That's crazy. So we know it's not going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. It would just be a winding hyperventilation, which is not going to be the case. So if it's not getting shorter and shorter and shorter, what is getting subtler? It's going to be the volume. Not the frequency, but the volume, how much air you're taking in, right? And this is widely known, especially in the Theravada tradition, where mindfulness of breathing is so strongly emphasized for you know, at least 1,500 years. And that is a unique quality of this particular method, among dozens of methods of, of shamatha, is that in mindfulness of breathing, whatever technique you're following, the more you progress along the path, approaching jhana, and then beyond, the subtler the object of mindfulness becomes. For everything else, as your stability increases, vividness increases, the meditative object gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Like in the, in the method of visualizing a Buddha image. At first it's very, very vague, right? Blurry, hardly even there. And then, ascend to stage four, five, six, and it just gets clearer, brighter, 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 until when you get to stage nine, it's like you're looking at it with your own eye. And that's likewise true for other, other methods. The, the, because your awareness is getting clearer, then the object appears more and more vividly, more obviously, right? more and more manifest. But in contrast to that, uniquely, as far as I know, I think it is unique, among all the shamatha methods Buddha taught and that were taught by later generations of Buddhists, mindfulness of breathing, the object of mindfulness gets subtler and subtler and subtler. 
So at some point, so what's going to happen here is that although the frequency of the breath presumably stables at some point, you know, stables out, it doesn't go to hyperventilation, but the volume is going to get less and less and less, which means the fluctuations in the field are going to get very, very subtle. Right? Well, that, what's, that, what's that going to call for, Carl? In, what's that going to call for? Greater vividness. If you're going to remain engaged with fluctuations that are really minute, and then get minuter and minuter and minuter, and you're not going to just lose and say, I don't think I'm breathing anymore, which means then you just lost it. Because your awareness is this, this sharp, and your breathing is this subtle. Then you're not getting anything, right? You have to stay connected. If you're going to stay connected, remain in that flow of non-conceptual cognizance. Crucial point, right? If you're going to maintain that flow of non-conceptual cognizance as the perturbations or fluctuations in the field are getting subtler and subtler and subtler because you're hardly taking in any air at all for the very simple reason you don't need it. You're not starving. You're not fasting on breath. It's not an austerity of seeing, let's see how little I can breathe. That's crazy. Nobody should do that. You know. But when the body doesn't need much air, don't give it more than it needs. Right? So that's the answer to your question. And that is the fluctuation of the field gets subtler and subtler and subtler. Now when you're getting into that flow where there's a certain rhythm there and you're following exactly what the Buddha said, literally, when the breath flows in short, short I note the in-breath is short. When the breath flows out short, I note that it's short. Then we move to the third tetrad. I'm going to finish all four of them right now. That'll give the big picture, all the way to Shamatha and beyond. Right? So big picture. So what's the next one? It's good to memorize. It's really easy. Right? Experiencing the whole breath, I breathe in. Experiencing the whole, the whole body, experiencing the whole body, I breathe in. Experiencing the whole body, I breathe out. That's the third tetrad. Right? Well, that can be understood in two ways, and both of them are very sensible, and one of them is very literal. When you say you're experiencing the whole body, are you really talking about bones and sinews and ligaments, vertebra, brain matter? doesn't make any sense, does it? Because that's not what's coming up. You're not visualizing your body. Right? So when it speaks of the whole body, tending to the whole body, I breathe in, what's it going to be? It's going to be this field. This field generated by the body that you're getting in first person, you're tending to the whole field. And within the whole field, you're also, here's the Theravada interpretation, you're tending to the whole body of the breath. And that is, you're not pecking at it. You're not getting the in-breath and then taking a vacation for the out-breath. Or getting the out-breath and skipping the in-breath. You're there for the whole, it's a full-time job. Right? You've heard me say that before. Full-time job, mindfulness of breathing. And that is, for the whole course of the in-breath, you're there all the way. Whole course of the out-breath, you're there all the way. In-breath, all the way. That is, you're just continually engaged. And that's the challenge he gives you. After you've worked through, allowed the body to settle down from the long in-breath, long out-breath, and it's settled down to more of a flow of, of short in-breath, short out-breath. And then it's just getting subtler and subtler and subtler in terms of the sheer volume of your breath. Perturbation getting subtler and subtler. What's your challenge now? What's your practice? To see that you're not just stagnating, because it's very easy to stagnate. Well, here's how not to stagnate. Let the whole system calm down. 
breathe more and more egolessly. Because if you let your, your preferences, regulation, control come in, that will screw everything. That will stop it. Show over. Right. You have to be releasing, releasing, releasing. Breathe Dzogchen, isn't it? Really subtly releasing. Not even a little bit of preference. Not even a little bit of help. Just let it be. Choksha, let it be. Big phrase from Dzogchen. But now choksha, let it be with respect to your respiration. Be very mindful of it. Don't mess with it at all. And in that way, the whole system calms down. And now in this third phase, you have one task. Attending to the whole body, I breathe in. Attending to the whole body, I breathe out. Continuity. Continuity. At this point, you, you may just throw out, as now no longer useful, what I inserted in from Padmasambhava, and that is the arousal release, or arousal relief, may no longer be useful. At some point, it certainly won't be useful. Maybe now, because you're in a flow. It's steady. You are clear. You are still. So you don't need to fluctuate anymore. That was preliminary exercise, and it wasn't there in the text. Now it's just attend to the whole body, breathing in. Attend to the whole body, breathing out. Right? But it gets subtler and subtler and subtler. And then what happens as a result of that? Calming the composite of the body, I breathe in. Calming the composite of the body, I breathe out. That's the word. Calming, soothing. We're talking here very obviously. This is not an interpretation. This is kind of like, this is what it says. Equipoise. Samahita. Equipoise. That meditated the whole system. The whole, it's the, he says the composite of the body, or nicely, the system of the body. It's a nice word, very close. It's a, it's a good translation. The system of the body is getting calmed. An ocean which is unmoved by wind becomes calm, even glassy. You may be able to see the reflections of the, of the stars and planets. Classic analogy from Tibetan Buddhism. Even in the ocean, you may be able to see if it's extremely calm. No wind. Remember, wind was the analogy of excitation and anxiety. When there's no wind, then that's calm. It's, they call it a dead calm right? in sailing. When you're in the doldrums and it's dead calm, there's not even a whisker of of wind, dead calm, right? Well, the ocean has become a mirror. Right? Your body's become a mirror. It's settled, it's calm. Soothing, calming. Right? That equipoise. And then there's equipoise, and then there's equipoise. And that is when you've achieved shamatha, access to the vrishjana. Well, that is really very, very good equipoise. Free of even subtle excitation, free of even subtle laxity. But since we already know scientifically that you can be aware of the rhythm of the breath, even when you're not explicitly aware of the body at all, as in a dream, right? then to extend a little bit, then what's to prevent you once you've achieved access to the first jhana? What's to prevent you from just, st- just staying the course, doing the same practice? And now you just stay right there. Just as Padmasambhava says, at the end of Shamatha without a sign, after he's gone through the different preliminary phases, then he said, now, just release your mind into space. And then he doesn't say for one day, three months, six years, he just says, do it until your mind has settled in its natural state. Right? That's what he says. But there's no more instruction. Because there's no more method. That's the method. Now just call me when you're finished. And we'll go to the next chapter. But call me when you're finished. Because you're really not ready for the next chapter, really, until you have done that. Right? And so... If we just go back to simple shamatha, just rest in awareness. 
And in the field surrounding your awareness, this dharmadhatu, this space of mental experience, and there, you've not stopped breathing. When you've achieved shamatha, you haven't stopped breathing. It's just gotten very subtle. But now what happens is you move on to the first jhana, the full achievement of first jhana, second jhana, third jhana. What's happening, and this has been you know, corroborated by I don't know how many thousands of yogis for hundreds and hundreds of years, the breath becomes subtler and subtler and subtler. More subtle than access to the first jhana. More subtle than shamatha. Subtler in the first jhana, subtler in the second jhana, subtler in the third jhana that anybody looking at you from outside, if they weren't a doctor, if they're just looking closely at your body, you're not breathing. Yes, you are. But only you would know. It is so subtle. You'll probably see no outward sign. I'm not even sure about a mirror. Maybe a tiny, tiny bit. Because you are breathing. But then the anomaly. The singularity. Singularity is a very cool term in, in mathematics and in physics. Singularity is when there's a zero in the denominator, which means that it doesn't make any sense. You can't see anything. It's just a simple fraction. If there's a zero in the denominator, it's not equal to anything. Not infinity, not nothing, and nothing in between. It's not anything at all. It just does not compute. There's a singularity. I studied cosmology. And there's a singularity when you go back in time to the Big Bang. If you're one nanosecond after the Big Bang, you find intense, intensely high temperature, intensely high density, intense, incredibly super, 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 super high when you get just one nanosecond after the Big Bang. But if you go one nanosecond earlier to time equals zero, well, that zero winds up being, being in the denominator, in which case it does not compute. Then it just, this is no longer physics because we can't talk anymore. This is where you can't say anything. Because whatever you say is not relevant. Right? Well, there's a singularity which breaks all the laws of physics. Not all the laws of physics, but it breaks some pretty big laws. And that's when you achieve the fourth jhana. If you achieve the fourth jhana, the breath has just incrementally gone subtler, 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 subtler. The volume... It's just getting subtler and subtler. You get the fourth jhana, zero. It's flatlined. No breath. Not little breath, no breath. That sounds like you should die within about three minutes. Your brain, your, your, your brain won't get any oxygen. Three, four, five minutes, and then you're, the brain is so severely damaged, you'll never recover, or you're just dead. It doesn't take many minutes of no oxygen flow to the brain. I don't know how many, but it's very few, right? And so... That should be your prize when you achieve the fourth jhana, is you get to experience it for a few minutes and then you're dead. You know? Happily, that's not the case. Unusually, we have an incredible anomaly here. And that is when you achieve jhana. Just look at Buddha Gosa. But it's common. Everybody who studied Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, they say exactly the same thing. That when you achieve jhana, fourth jhana, the breath stops completely. Everybody knows. Any good scholar knows that. The yogis actually know it, but... It, the, the scholars know, yeah, that's, that, that's what the Buddha said, that's what everybody says. But what's interesting about that is now it said you've achieved, in the Theravada tradition, they say you've achieved now the perfection of equanimity and the perfection of mindfulness. And you can remain in that meditative equipoise for a week, two weeks, with pure samadhi, no breath, completely disengaged from the environment around you. Buddha Gosa says something like, if a bullock train 
passes right by your meditation cushion with a hundred bullocks and so forth and so on, you will pick up nothing. You may as well be on a different planet. Right? You've gone into to the pinnacle of the form realm. And your breathing has stopped. And it can stop for weeks while you're remaining in samadhi. Now you come up and we're walking around having a cup of tea. Then you breathe again, of course. Not like you never breathe again. But while you're in samadhi, while you're in samadhi, no breath at all. Well, that already, any biologist say, that should be impossible. I mean, totally impossible. Even if you somehow survived it, you should come out vegetative. That would be the best shot. You know, but really, you shouldn't be able to be alive at all. And the Buddhist, and of course, the Buddhist didn't invent this. This was old news before the Buddha came along. The Hindus had already mapped all of this out. They knew all about this. So the, the Buddha added techniques, methods, and so forth. But they already knew about this. This was, this was the, the premier contemplative civilization on the planet 2,500 years ago. The best place for Gautama to go. Not Central America or North America or Africa or, or China. Uh-uh. Go to, the, go to the hub where they've nailed samadhi. You know. And so an anomaly, it's a singularity. It's really a singularity. And I might share with you later, not now, because time is passing so quickly. But I was recently just polishing a, a, a translation I did of the first, yeah, it was the first teaching that Gatrudamuchi ever had me interpret for him. I'd met him, I'd received some wonderful dream yoga teachings from him, made the connection, he was my lama. And became his laman, and then I became his interpreter. He said, Alan, I've been asked to go down to um, Los Angeles to teach at the Shambhala Center. And uh, come with me. I want you to interpret for me. Sure, well, yeah. And so we went down there to the Hollywood Shambhala Center. Remember, 1991 or so, long time ago. Were you there? Oh. Yeah, long time ago. 1991, no later than 91, probably 1990. And, uh, and he chose this text. And it was by Kama Chakme. But it wasn't included in Spacious Path of Freedom or Natural Liberation. Excuse me, uh, Naked Awareness. It's not that text. It's another text called uh, his commentary, his great commentary, Kama Chakme this great scholar, adept of the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition from the uh, 17th century. Uh, and it's called, it's great commentary to Buddhahood in the Palm of the Hand. And Rinpoche just reached into it. He didn't start from the text, because he's only there for a weekend. And he just reached into the text, and he, just the first chapter he plucked out was, oh, you'll never guess. The chapter on Shamatha. Chapter 16, I think it was. Do you think Rinpoche had some mission for me or something? I don't know. Go figure. But there he is. He plucked that one out. And as he was teaching it, my mind was just going, and I knew I had to translate the text, so I did. Uh, and then he went on and he taught the Vipassana section too, there on the same weekend. And so that was the first time I translated for him. So I translated both of the chapters. But, the, the, but I was just reviewing and polishing my translation, which I did more than 20 years ago, almost like 24 years ago, of the chapter in Shamatha. And Kama Chamedamuchi, this great Dzogchen Mahamudra master, when he's talking about Shamatha, he actually talks about all the four jhanas. And then he says, when you've achieved the fourth jhana, Very unusual things that will happen, but I'm going to keep you in total suspense. Because <laughs> I don't want to paraphrase it when I can just read it. Because you won't believe me. But you might believe Kamachame. Not this old California dude. You know. Quite amazing. Maybe we'll get to that 
next week. So don't die. <laughs> don't die before Monday anyway. It's really cool. <laughs> I'll do my best too. You know. But what it is is a singularity because the laws of physics, for you, the laws of physics just start breaking down all over the place. Like a house in which you threw some TNT and just... <laughs> laws of physics falling apart. Things that should be absolutely impossible now are possible from that fourth jhana. Quite interesting. And that's by the sheer power of samadhi. It's not by the power of re realization of emptiness. That breaks things apart. Not by the power of realizing rikpa. Oh, that really breaks things apart. But surely by the power of samadhi. That's interesting. From a scientific perspective, it's really, really interesting. So there it is. So the mission plan is clear then, right? Breathing in long, breathing out long. Breathing in short, breathing out short. Attending the whole body, calming the, the system of the body. And there's the complete trajectory from where you are today to the fourth jhana. Fourth jhana. Where you hit the singularity at the end where the breathing, there isn't any more. And then you just rest in that ocean, that limitless ocean of equanimity. And then you're right on the cusp entering into the formless realm. That may be not so useful. He doesn't mention it. I wouldn't spend time there. Life is so short. You, know, you might, you can save yourself some time. You don't need to read it. You can, you can get to the form realm, formless realm after your Buddha. Pick it up as a tip. <laughs> don't spend any time earning it. Okay. Well, that's clear. Yeah, good. Good. Let's go then. Let's go into practice. Then I won't need to say much. We'll really simply continue on course. Um, Kim, you okay? Okay, good. No problem. Uh, I just was concerned for you. That's all. Very simple. But I think, because uh, I was actually addressing a question you raised in the very beginning, so you might want to check out the podcast. I think you'll find it interesting. <coughs> it's the difference between substrate, consciousness, and uh, rikpa. One word nails it. Oh, that's all. Good. Find a comfortable position. Now with very few words, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
most importantly, find that stillness. Find the stillness by releasing all that deprives you of the stillness, that sets your awareness in motion, scurrying off here and there. Release it all. And what's left in the absence of grasping is the stillness of your awareness, by nature clear, luminous, bright. Rest in that natural, uncontrived, effortless stillness and clarity of your own awareness. And then without focusing your direction here or there, be simply explicitly aware of what you've already been aware of, whether implicitly or explicitly, and that is the fluctuations in the field of your awareness that correspond to the in and out breath. And then simply follow exactly what the Buddha said with no interpretation. Be literal when the breath in-breath flows in long, note that it is long. When the out-breath flows out long, note that it is long. And then whether incrementally or whether there's a sudden decrease in the duration of your breath, either way, whatever happens, without preference, without expectation, as the breath either incrementally or suddenly becomes shorter in its duration, when the in-breath is short, know that it is short. When the out-breath is short, know that it is short. And when, at least for a time, you're in that mode, like a sinusoidal wave, a smooth rhythm, a smooth oscillation, but in which the breathing is relatively short, then take up the third challenge presented by the Buddha in this tetrad. Attending to the whole body, I breathe in. Attending to the whole body, I breathe out. And continue there. Keep it simple. Don't second-guess yourself. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Golazo. So we have just a few minutes. So I will read a little bit more of the section on the transitional phase of living. Oh, yeah. So I continue. Oh, and by the way, I think probably by now or very shortly, uh, Sangye will send you this text. You already have it. Oh, good. Then she sent you everything. She's so good. Olasu. So I'll continue. As for the etymology of transitional phase, or bardo, bardo, what does it break down to just in terms of the word itself? This term refers to the arising of unstable, delusive, dreamlike appearances in the intervals after a prior state of existence and before a later state of existence occurs. So that's why you see I can't just call it intermediate state because it's, it's always in transition. It's after something, prior to something else. But these adjectives are enormously important and extremely accurate. Each of these transitional phases of living, of dreaming, and so forth and so on, they're all unstable. We may grasp onto them as stable. We may feel that we're no longer in a transitional phase. Well, we got that one wrong. They are by nature unstable. They're delusive. It's a little bit from different than deluded. A person becomes deluded. But appearances are delusive in the sense that they invite you to become deluded. They're misleading. They're devious. They're tricky. Right? They lead you in the wrong direction. So therefore, delusive, things appear in a manner in which they do not exist, exactly as in a dream. Seems, everything seems to be totally there from its own side. Well, it's not, but it certainly seems to be. That's delusive. And then dreamlike, well, very powerful metaphor. So it refers to the arising of unstable, delusive, dreamlike appearances in the intervals after a prior state of existence, such as your last death or your last bardo, and, pri and before a later state of existence occurs, such as your dying process. Here are the classifications of the transitional phases. So these are the six. <clears throat> the first one you're familiar with by now. The grasping transitional phase of living, or the transitional phase of living that's strongly characterized by this deeply ingrained habit of grasping. The contemplative transitional phase of meditation. We'll see what that's about. The delusive Transitional phase of dreams, delusive, begin because dreams are misleading. And those are the three we'll be focusing on for these eight weeks, and then there are the three that we'll not be attending to. The gradual transitional process of dying, the inconceivable transi transitional phase of ultimate reality, or dhammata, and the karmic transitional phase of becoming. That's the classic intermediate state that is often referred to as simply bardo, bardo. It's referring to the sixth bardo. So there are the six. So now we focus in on the first one. And that's what will occupy us for the next couple of weeks or so. First, the transitional phase of living is like a little bird on a treetop. For in this transitional phase, you cannot remain long. You cannot remain for long before you must move on to another world. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a charming image. We've all seen it. The Tibetans have a different word for bird and a little bird. A little bird is chu, cha and chu. So a cha can be a crane, right? If a crane lands on a big tree, it might hang out there overnight. But a little bird, it's you. You know, they just don't hang out. They just, like they're all hyper. It's only a matter of seconds, probably when, like that. That's where we are right now. We're hunkering down, ready to you know, go for the long, long haul. 
And we said, you're like a little bird on the treetop. Don't get too comfortable. You're about to fly away. Tweet, tweet. So it's like a little bird on a treetop, for in this transitional phase you cannot remain for long before you must move on to another world, into another transitional phase. <clears throat> By pondering the nature of this process, <clears throat> you abandon the attitude of preparing to remain in this world for a long time. As if, really pragmatically speaking, you're kind of counting on immortality. You know? And it sounds like totally ridiculous. You have to be totally insane. Who's immortal? But then look for how many people are actually living as if they're immortal. They acquire things at least so they can really keep them for the long term. As if they have some kind of a guarantee at least another 50 years. Or at least my death is so far away I don't need to think about it. You know, I'm not like those sick people. You know those other ones that get cancer and have strokes and have accidents? And I'm not like those people. I'm one of the long life people. You know, and having that confidence. We all smile until we think maybe we're doing it ourselves. And then we kind of look stupid. So then, like a bee in pursuit of nectar, you first cut through mistaken notions by means of hearing and pondering the Dharma. So here really is a sequential. It makes eminently good sense. If at some point there is that turning point in your life and you really find a need, not just you're interested, but a real need, you need something more. You know, something more than what many people appear to be satisfied with or simply don't have the imagination to transcend. And that is something more than the pursuit of hedonic well-being. You know, something more. Right? Get to that point where you really feel, I need to find a path, I need to find some dharma. Then what he's saying here is, you know, you're making a big step here. This is much bigger than marriage, or deciding what college to go to, or what city to move to, or what kind of job to get. This is much, much, much bigger. So any sensible person before you get married, you, know, you really, if it's an arranged marriage, your parents really check it out carefully. If it's modern type of marriage, you check it out carefully. Don't be an idiot. You know, just, oh, she's birdie. Let's get married. You know, don't be dope. But this is much more important than that. Or taking ordination. That's a big deal. But this is actually even bigger than that. Ordination, of course, is for the sake of practicing dharma. But if you're going to choose a dharma, then really consider very carefully. Because the stakes could not be higher. Right? Choose a crappy dharma, you're going to be really screwed. Choose a good one, you'll be really blessed for the long term, way beyond the context of this life. Monastic ordination is only for one life. When you're dead, you're no longer a monk or a nun. Right? When you're dead, you're no longer married. In fact, the Tibetans have a nice phrase, there's no such thing as dead people. Dead people as in human beings. It's really, it comes out of our basic debating on the courtyard. There's no such thing as dead people. Because by the time you're dead, you're no longer a people. <laughs> you know? It's kind of like simple, but then why are people going to graves and say, hey, Grandma, how are you? They're looking at fertilizer, you know. I'm really, they're looking at mulch. They may as well go to the, you know, the nursery and look at a bag of manure and say, hello, Grandma, how are you? And put a flower in it. It's very strange. We're such a superstitious society. Looking at fertilizer and thinking, oh, I miss you. Very strange, isn't it? So, there it is. But, he'd move, he, but so he says... Cut through mistaken notions. Get clarity. Cut through mistaken notions. If you hear about anything, whether it's Buddhism or Marxism or Sufism or anything, you're bound to get some misconceptions. Because, you know, blah, 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 just the word on the marketplace is hardly ever really accurate. It's slogans. You know, the Buddhists think life is suffering. You know, they're really pessimistic. You know, 
I mean, just these slogans. So you hear about it, cut through misconceptions, cut through, cut through, almost like taking a, sorry for the vegetarians, but cutting through, getting a big chunk of meat, just cutting off all the fat so you get what is the actual meat, what, when you get actually to it, what's really there, that you're not mistaken by culture. Tibetan Buddhism is so Tibetan. I love Tibetan culture, but that's not my dharma. You know? And so you have to cut through that a bit. If you're Tibetan, you don't need to, because your culture, your dharma, totally merges. It's no problem. Eventually, one day, there may be really a Western dharma. It's kind of an embryonic phase right now. But um, sooner or later, you have to recognize the difference between culture and dharma. And then, is the, is the dharma really a path for you? Is this your dharma? Is this authentic? You have to hear it, you have to study, you have to think about it, you have to check it out. You know? That's what he's saying here. Cut off misconceptions. And when you are practicing, so first of all, hearing and thinking, and then there's the meditation, actually putting into practice, he said, when you're practicing, you must cut off uncertainties and hesitation. As if you were a swallow entering its nest. He's going to unpack this metaphor. It's really lovely. But I've been emphasizing this for years, right? I'm just, I'm just echoing words of wisdom that have been around for centuries. When you're practicing, I'll give you the pith right now. When you're practicing, practice correctly. But that's not enough. Know that you're practicing correctly. You know the difference, yeah? You can be practicing correctly and be second-guessing yourself and doubting and uncertainty and waff, waffle, waffling and wavering and driving yourself nuts. Then you say, oh, caramba, you were doing it right already, but you didn't know it. So it's not enough to practice correctly. You have to know that you're practicing correctly. And then shut up. You know, the little nagging doubts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shut up. When you know, you don't sit, if there's good uncertainties, you really don't understand something. How do you progress on the path of shamatha? By mindfulness of breathing. How do you develop good, better clarity? That's a good question. What's the difference between substrate consciousness and rikpa? That's a good question. You don't say that to shut up. You get clarity first. But now he's talking about practice. When you're practicing, learn well how to practice. Practice well. Know you're practicing well. And then you continue without that afflictive uncertainty, that afflictive skepticism, doubt. That's one of the five obscurations. Right? Really important. Really important. You can make yourself so unnecessarily unhappy by nagging doubts which really have no grounding in reality. He's going to unpack this and then I'll stop for the evening and for the week. For among birds, the swallow is especially skilled at inspection. When it first builds its nest, it carefully observes for a long time whether or not there might be disturbances or harm from other creatures. After this is determined, it builds its nest. So I'm a bird watcher. I know about birds' nests. Robins and sparrows and a whole bunch of birds, they just find a good tree, start gathering little straw and so forth and build it. It's, it's for one season only. They lay their eggs, chick grow up, they fly, they never look at the nest again. You know, and then the wind blows it off, and okay, no problem, I was only here for a little while anyway. Anybody ever see the swallow's nest? American, San Juan Capistrano? You know how long that, the mission, you know how long that swallow's nest has been there? Like 200 years, right? Really, and the swallows keep coming back every year to the same nest. Now they'll do a bit of patchwork here, maintenance, but you know, they're building like the, you know, like the, the, the padres built. They're building their missions there to be for, for, there for several hundred years, you know. The swallows do the same thing. But that means before you make your nest, that 20 generations of your kin will be using you know, over the coming centuries. You're going to do this. You're not going to be like the swallow or the, or the robin or what have you. They say, oh, that's good enough branch. Let's just build it there. 
because it's only for one season. No, you think, you know, you're not, what are you thinking of? Probably it's biologically programmed, of course. Evolution, genetics, and all that. But nevertheless, they really do inspect carefully. This is good, this is good you know, bird biology. And that is they check out very carefully, is this a place to build a nest for the long term? Predators, weasels, hawks, people, and so forth and so on. So it's really good, you know, this is good observation. It's true. They check it out when they've carefully determined it. This is the hearing and thinking phase. Really check it out. Before you invest your life, before you make a commitment, any dharma, be like the swallow, right? And so after this is determined, it builds its nest. Once its nest is built, from then on, it goes straight to its nest like an arrow without any uncertainty or hesitation. So when you really know your path, and you know your practice, then you go straight to your medication cushion, like an arrow shot to a target. You go to it, you start practicing, and you do it sharp, clear, and you know what you're doing. And you're confident you know what you're doing. Right? So, and to a little bit more commentary on this, because this is so enormously important, it's not just a cushion. You can, have, you can put your cushion down in a place that's utterly unconducive to practice, especially shamatha practice. Right? So in this regard, then, we human beings, we're not slaves and not serfs, which is another type of slavery, right? That we're not tied to one land, we're not tied to, we're not anybody else's possession. They can't tell us, you cannot leave. And some totalitarian governments, yes they can, but not us. Otherwise they wouldn't have let you come here. I'm a subversive, you know. And so we have the freedom to choose our environment. That's one of our greatest freedoms, really. One of our greatest freedoms. That if we're stuck in an environment whether it's a country, a state, a town, or a home, a house, a neighborhood, that really is unconducive to our practice. We cannot flourish. And I have been, rarely, but I have been in such environments. I can't flourish. It's not that it's evil, it's just I can't flourish. If I were a better practitioner, I could, but I'm not. There's a reality. I can't flourish here. I've been. I won't, I won't elaborate, but yeah, I've been, I've been there. I can't flourish. I'm not up to it. Then get out. Or if you can gently, harmoniously change the environment, nice. But sometimes you can't. Where I was, I remember one occasion, I couldn't change that environment. I had no power whatsoever. They didn't want my suggestions. I had no power to implement my suggestions. Nothing. So I got out. So that's really enormously important. If you're in an environment where you cannot flourish in your Dharma practice, time's passing. And once it's gone, it's finished. You, know, you will not get it back. So make sure. It's one of our great freedoms. For thus, those of us who don't, do not live in totalitarian governments, where you're basically owned by the state, you know, to choose really important. Find a good dharma, but also find a conducive environment for practicing dharma, so there's no regrets. No regrets about the dharma you chose. No regrets about the environment, the way of life that you chose. No regrets. Milarepa said, "What's your aspiration to die without regret?" Right? He didn't mean anything trivial by that. The Dalai Lama said the same thing. So, likewise, so there's this beautiful metaphor. I've remembered it for years now. The swallow in its nest. You know? Likewise, by first devoting yourself to a qualified teacher. So, you better check out. Go to any teacher. That teacher will probably say he or she is qualified. You know? They're trying to make a living. You know? I'm qualified. I'm qualified. You know? Maybe so. Maybe not. But it is a bit of a problem. Because I was just with a psychotherapist in, a, in Australia. And he's, and he's been practicing psychotherapy for like 30 years, and he still is coming up for audit. He 
he still has to be examined by the state to show that he's still up to snuff, that he still gets you know, licensing. And he's almost my age. But they still check, right? Medical doctors, same thing. You, you will go to jail, I think. At least a big fine. You'll probably go to jail. If you say, I'm a medical doctor, and you're not, oh, oh, look out. Look out. Maybe some countries can get away with it, but not Europe or America. Forget about it. You're in deep trouble. So psychotherapist, psychiatrist, medical doctor, and many other professions you cannot practice. And that you are qualified, trained, and certified, right? Very common. What kind of qualification, certification do you need to become a Dharma teacher? Nothing. But now what has a bigger impact on your life? Your medical doctor, your psychotherapist, your architect, your plumber, they can't practice without getting certified. Your plumbing or your Dharma practice, you know, which has a bigger impact? So we're living in a bit of a crazy world. Not that you know, I, I want to be a dictator and say, you can, you're qualified, you're not qualified, but just the reality of it is, anybody that says, I can teach meditation, you can put up a plank, and if you're popular, you're charismatic, you give a good talk, you'll get followers. And you'll totally, if you're unqualified, you'll really harm them. You know? So that we have to be, it wasn't such a concern in a place like Tibet. Because if somebody was really a bozo, the ones who know would say, that guy's a bozo. What are you going to him for? He's a twerp. They would know. You would really wouldn't have to check out much. Because there were so many qualified teachers that if somebody cropped up was just a, a jerk, huh, would never, you really wouldn't get much headway. But in America, Europe, or for that matter, India nowadays, you know, there are a lot of quacks. Walks like a quack, quacks like a quack. You know? But if you don't know Dharma already, then you can easily be misled. So there we go. So find a qualified teacher. And by acquiring broad learning and deep understanding, you should be able to proceed to the essential points of the path by your own power without error. Boy, I can save you a lot of time with that paragraph. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I was asked to make some brief comments, and I'm going to keep making them very brief. It's dinner time in a minute and a half. Um, because I won't, we won't be collecting, gathering together, of course, until Monday morning. Um, dream yoga will begin in something like two weeks or so. Um, but I found to my great joy when I got to know Stephen LeBerge and started studying literature and then receiving a lot of teaching from him when we taught our six 10-day workshops together in California and in Hawaii. Uh, and it actually went back, yeah, the same period, 1992. We had a sleeping, dreaming, dying conference with His Holiness Dalai Lama. And then Lucid Dreaming was represented. It's a beautiful book, edited by Francisco Varela. Uh, but in any case, the, the theories and the practices, the methods of this very modern discipline, it's only about 30 years old, of lucid dreaming. And I don't think you get better than Stephen Lambert. At least he's the one I really know. He's really, really good. And now there's some, some new books coming out uh, that are very, very, very good by people who know Dharma well and really know lucid dreaming as well. So there's a number of good books come out in just the last year or two. Uh, but the point being that dream yoga by itself, if you just take it right out of the six yogas of Naropa or right out of the six bardos, it looks like a pretty steep hill to climb. You know, the visualization and so forth. I first received teachings on the six yogas of Naropa in 1978. And uh, it was just like I was looking at clouds about 30,000 feet above. <laughs> wow, one day maybe I'll be there. But I, I knew completely clearly, boy, am I not there. You know, and I was right. But we were given seeds, we were given imprints for later. 
that was 1978, 12 years later, Gautu Rinpoche gave me guidance that actually then connected Undream Yoga. The point being here, lucid dreaming gives you some little, little ladder, a little ladder that's not too difficult, not awesome, doesn't make your jaw drop and say, I'll never get there. And so simple point before we head off for dinner and for our one day of total immersion in practice. Um, as Stephen LeBerge, I'm going to quote him a fair amount. He's good, he's a dear friend, and he's very articulate, very insightful, and tons of experience. Not only his own, but he's done a lot of research. You know? uh, perhaps more than anybody else in lucid dreaming. And his website, by the way, lucidity.com. Uh, in any case, Stephen makes a very good point when he said, if you don't remember your dreams, then even if you have a lucid one, you won't remember it. And that's just straight logic. It's true. So you could be whining, I never have lucid dreams. You may have one every two nights, but then if you don't remember your dreams, you won't remember you had a lucid one, right? So the first step, the first step is start to remembering your dreams. Some people already have very good dream recall with no effort, and other people feel they hardly ever have dreams, which what they're saying is, I hardly ever remember my dreams, because unless there's some real, probably a brain disorder or something, uh, just normal people have five to seven dreams every night, right? a varying duration. And so to take a greater interest in the dreams, uh, to make some effort prospectively to remember the dreams. And the easiest thing, now that we have, you know, these things are so ubiquitous, uh, writing down a dream, I've done it, it's kind of laborious. And if the dream's not all that interesting, it's kind of like, boy, do I really have to do this? You know, it just takes so much time. And I don't, I tend to be very stingy with my time. I don't want to do things that I don't find really meaningful. Talk into your cell phone. Turn it on, and you record your dreams that way, you know. Uh, but the point is to—that's um, the easiest way to do it. And you're, you're done in three minutes, blah, 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 depending on how long a dream is. So that's an easy way to develop a dream chronicle, you know. Um, but to start remembering your dreams, chronicling your dreams, dream diary—good step in the right direction. You know? Just because you're giving interest to it, and then it's almost like if you get interest to a child, the child will start perking up and giving more attention to you. You say, oh that adult is, inter is interested in me, then, oh, then, you know, the same thing. Start paying attention to your mind or your dreams, they'll start rising up to meet you. And so do so. Start paying, giving more, more effort to remembering your dreams, even if you find them trivial, uninteresting, not meaningful. Well, they're not going to stay that way. Dream journal would be good. Pick up 10, 20, 30. And then a simple point before we break, and that is simple technique, really simple not hard. And that is prospective memory. To remember to know something and do something. Those are the two things. Stephen LeBert. Prospect memory for lucid dreaming has to do with knowing something, and that is remembering to know something when it occurs, and remembering to do something. Knowing and doing. Okay? Knowing and doing. So what's a prospective memory? As you're falling asleep, then have a resolve, a prospective memory. Remember to do something in the future. And that is, after you've fallen asleep, at some point, you'll start to wake up. Right? And so the prospective memory about knowing is prospectively launch this missile into the future, this anticipation. And that is, as I start to wake up, I will recognize as quickly as possible that I'm waking up. Not know that you're waking up when you're going oh, like that, you know, like you're totally, you've been awake for three minutes or something. 
as you're waking up, try to know it, just like with introspection, like a little bit of excitation is coming in, you know it as quickly as possible. When you're waking up, try to get it as early as possible. And not when you're full-blown, totally awake, and it's irreversible. When you're waking up, right? Try to recognize that in anticipation. When I'm waking up, I will recognize that. That's knowing. And then when you know, you're kind of like this. I'm kind of lifting out of wherever I was. When you're right there, now that you've known it, okay, I'm, I'm kind of awake. I'm kind of not quite yet, but yeah, I'm in moving in that direction. You've just known something. Now do something. Be still. Be still. Don't move your body. Breathing, of course. Don't move your limbs. Don't open your eyes. Don't remain still. Remain still. Do remain still. It's doing something affirmatively. Do remain still. Right? Maybe a little bit better than don't move. Do remain still. So there you are. That's the, second, that's the first thing to do. And the second and final thing to do, and then it's dinner time, which it already is. Yes, there you are. You're kind of like, I'm going to cartoon it a little bit, but there you are. And then, rather than launching forward, launch backwards. Rather than launching forward into the day and fully waking up and attending to your daily activities, I won't say launch, but I'll say slip backwards. So there you are, kind of like, and then the cartoon is like, let your awareness drift back and pick up what was your last memory. An image, a video clip. What was the last thing that was in mind? And maybe, not always, but on many occasions, you're just waking up from a dream. So where were you? Where were you? You know, one minute ago. That is, what was appearing? And then, as if you've set down a novel, just some, you know, suddenly you're right in the middle of a chapter, you set down a novel, the, your, your tea's on, and you have to pour, your, pour the hot water for your tea, and, and then you're coming right back to your novel as the tea is brewing. Okay, now where was I? Where was I? Oh, yeah, there it is. And then you immerse your mind right back, back into the novel. You pick up the storyline, do the same thing. And that is, you're waking out of a dream, which means you, you broke the chapter, right? Well, then don't wake up fully if you can. See if you can just slip back and then pick up the last image. And maybe there's even a story there, a narrative, a situation. And if you're not really fully awake, maybe you can just kind of drift back, slip back, right back into the same dream, like the chapter you interrupted and then picked up reading again. See if you can slip right back into that dream and slip back in lucidly. Because you're quasi-awake, so go back and recognize the dream as the dream. It's called a dild, a dild, D-I-L-D. No, no, sorry, a wild or a wild, W-I-L-D, a waking-induced lucid dream. You're kind of awake, and from that state, waking state, it's a waking-induced. That is, you have enough wakefulness to know that if you're going back, you're going back into a dream. So it's a wild or a wild, a wild waking-induced lucid dream. See if you can come from that quasi-wakeful state and slip right back into the dream, but be lucid up on entry. And then pick up the narrative, and then just have a lucid dream. Okay? Now, you may not succeed the first time you try, but do try the other ones. Try to increase your dream recall, uh, and keep some dream journaling, and then we'll pick up later, later on. That'll keep you for at least a busy t- for a day or two. Okay? Good. All right. Well, enjoy your meal. Enjoy tomorrow. I shall. And I'll see you Monday morning.